Welcome back to the podcast. I wanted to quickly introduce my guest today, a close friend of mine who I learned an incredible amount from. You'll hear that introduction story and how how we became friends in a little bit. First, Emma Randall is going to cover long-term athlete development as well as periodization, something that I feel is firmly lacking in our understanding, one, at what a kid's career should look like over that six to seven, eight-year trajectory, as well as what the level of volume and intensity should be in season. So Emma is the head women's coach at the New York City RTC and the head of the Columbia Women's Club college program. She's actively involved in a number of organizations that are growing the sport across the country for female wrestlers. She has 10 years serving as a coach, both at the grassroots, the developmental level, collegiate programs, as well as alongside Terry Steiner in the Olympic program. She served a number of years at Beat the Streets New York City, which is where we became much closer, as I said earlier, with USA Wrestling as the right hand to Terry Steiner in the Women's Olympic program. One unique thing about Emma is she has her master's in sports science as well as sports psychology, and she's one of a handful of coaches in wrestling that have that certification and degree, as well as one of two female coaches in the sport that have their USA Wrestling Gold certification. So no further ado, welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I would like to mention that I've also learned so much from you over the years, too, so I'm grateful for you. Appreciate that. Thanks, Emma. Were you embarrassed as I was reading all those incredible accolades? Definitely. Definitely. I think that is like so uncomfortable. I I think it's pretty easy just to like leave it at like coach for 10 years, different levels and studied sport academically, but also putting those things into practice at the various levels and what does and doesn't work for our women and and from my own experiences. So I think uh, those extra accolades are nice, but it's hard to accept (laughs) all of them because I think every coach has a lot of information to share. Yeah. Well, I I think it's interesting too. When you think about that, I hate when anybody shares my coaching (laughs) accolades or my competitive (laughs) accolades, really, um, which could be a whole other topic, how, you know, within our industry right now, there's such a problem of hiring based on competitive result, not on how great of a coach are you? Well, I a hundred percent agree. I think if you look at any other pro sport, they're not looking at what your individual accolades are. They're looking at what you studied and, and your experience as a coach and what you can contribute to a team. So I think that's a huge area for our sports to continue to grow. And then it's just us stepping outside of that comfort zone of, of what we're used to and, and redefining what the sport can be. You know, and I think that also goes back to the LTAD models and to periodization too, right? Like what kind of experience are we giving to those student athletes who are stepping onto the mat for the first time and those who are coming back and, and are we giving them the best experience? Are we preparing them for long-term success on and off the mat or are we doing what we've always done and hoping for the best? So I think that's a great segue into what we wanted to cover today. When you mentioned LTAD, long-term athlete development, I'm familiar with the term. Before we met, I wasn't, you know, I kind of had an idea of what it was, but I didn't know in a professional sense what that actually was. I remember I went to the state leader summit for USA Wrestling when I was working with Beat the Streets and another close friend of mine, Sally said, Hey, you got to meet this person. You got to meet Emma. And I was like, okay. You know, and I, at that time was having tons of conversations with tons of coaches because I was deep into coaching and super passionate about it. And I remember sitting you know, outside on a patio or something in between sessions. And we had probably an hour, hour and a half, two hour conversation. And I remember being so happy because I felt like you were the only person that actually got this, that I had talked to Mm -hmm. outside of like 
one or two other individuals, right? Like Ernie Monaco and Ray Brenzer, are maybe the two other individuals that really understood what you were saying. And I didn't even understand what you're saying. You're talking circles around me, but I love the fact that like your mind was in the same place. No, I remember we were sitting out at Cheyenne Mountain Resort and we were talking about the web of moves and how things are connected entrances and exits and like, how do you teach strategically to get the, like the most bang from your book with your athletes? And I was like, Oh, this is so interesting. Like <laughs> I yeah. also enjoyed that conversation and the beautiful view because that resort's gorgeous too. <laughs> so as far as periodization, high school athletes are in two days. Sometimes right now I'm one, I had a high school athlete, small group last night. We spent 40 minutes drawing a concept map and slowly moving through positions, right? <laughs> Very counter to what, Oh, it's wrestling practice. We have to work hard. Mm, no, actually. Oh, you said you're struggling with understanding your, it's a female wrestler. I was coaching. She primarily focused on freestyle. It's folk style season for the next three months. She didn't know where to go on bottom. She had no goals. So, okay, <laughs> let's do a little homework and let's solve this. So we made yeah. a worksheet with exactly that concept map. So uh, <laughs> yeah, once you understand your why and think deeply about, you know, how you got to those various positions and, and the entrances and exits, I think it's a huge advantage. You know, a couple of our athletes here at, at Columbia also really enjoyed the concept mapping. Uh, if you look at Gary Mayab, who's had a successful career at, in the high school level and also at USA Greco, and then now at Iowa with Clarissa Chun, I think like one of the things that I always saw him walking around with was for each individual athlete, what's their best attack? How are they going to get there from a variety of positions? What are my top three finishes for that entrance? And how am I scoring points when I get on top? If I'm going single leg, I'm going lace. If I'm doing high C, I'm going to my Turk. But he was like, okay, how do we get there from our two-on-one? How do we get there from our underhook? How do we get there from bicep tie, right? And thinking about that strategically is so cool. Yeah, that's amazing. We might have to dig into the, that in an entirely separate podcast because I have many questions I want to ask. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, I won't go there. Okay, so long-term athlete development, right? We're sitting at Cheyenne Mountain. We're talking about that a little bit uh, as far as the concept maps. Can you, at a, at a very high level, define like what long-term athlete development means to you as, as a, I mean, primarily a high-performance coach at this point too? Yeah, I think... What started it for me was uh, studying sports science and sports psychology. A big piece of that bit is like understanding how do people develop throughout ages. And I think there's a ton of research for parents nowadays where they're like, oh, now I should be teaching my child this or I should be expecting this. Or, you know, you can order those gift boxes that say, hey, these are the toys that are relevant to your kid right now. But a lot of times when we step into the wrestling room or into another sport, that coach doesn't always have the framework, right? They're not giving us the, the right age appropriate box of tools or toys or drills and skills that fit where we should be. And so I think when I imagine that the LTAD model, the long-term athlete development model, I'm thinking about like, what am I packaging up for these people in this moment? And is it appropriate for their age? How many years have they been training in this sport? What are their goals? What are they capable of completing like strength-wise, conditioning-wise, agility-wise, tumbling and gymnastics? Are they capable of like understanding the entire sport or do I just need to simplify it and keep it basic? Are we just teaching techniques? Are we starting to add tactics? Is the priority on learning or is the priority on competing at a high level? And, and just like the LTAD model kind of frames it out for you. You can go specifically to the age of the athletes that you're working with and it'll tell you exactly like what are the psychological skills that this athlete should possess at this time? Like emotional control is something that's huge for our younger athletes, creating that independence as they move towards high school where there's a little bit of self-guided learning where they have those bits of time where they have six to 10 minutes to, to try something new and helping them learn how to focus their attention and start to grow. Physically, they're able to do 
you know, starting with body weight exercises and they move to maybe like a partner exercise, maybe, you know, they add now to the weight room, but it gives you a really cool rundown of, of where they should be. And then as a coach, right, I also need to recognize that maybe because they should be in this box, are they really in that box? Are they maybe too far behind? In New York City, a lot of our student athletes didn't get the opportunity to have a PE class. And so when it was time to do a forward roll, they were not ready, even though they were 13, 14, 15, 16. You know, we're actually moving backwards a little bit to review, recover and and reteach and relearn those areas so that we can start to progress and add to it and, and pair things together, whether that's a simple skill such as like a forward roll or something as more complex as like a setup to a shot to a takedown, you know, and, and into a turn. So what would be, you mentioned a number of things about just body control and having the right physical skill set, right? So before this, we were talking a little bit about if I don't have the strength to do a push up, why are you going to have me go underneath somebody and grab their leg? So you, can you talk us through what might be a age appropriate physical skill development from let's say a single leg and, and the development of that, when you would introduce it, why you would introduce it then, why wouldn't you introduce it at a certain point and kind of talk us through what you're looking for outside of the emotional component, et cetera, like in the actual physical development long-term for the athlete? Yeah, I have the pleasure of working with like a lot of novices here at Columbia University. And I also have some, some more experienced women, but like it really made me think about like, what are we teaching these women when they first step on the mat, right? And is it something that's going to make me successful right away? Or is it something that I'm going to have to master and, and, you know, learn seven different finishes? And so to simplify the sport, we really focus on positioning, defensive lines of defense, head and hands and hips, right? And I'm controlling and working on my stance every single day. I'm working on matching levels. I'm working on controlling an attack hand. I'm working on getting my head to the collar so I can feel her changing levels. Um, and that feeds into my short offense. Imagine a world where no one was on top of you and you could easily just circle your feet <laughs> around an opponent, right? And so when I start to think about, you know, how do I make it simple? It starts with just that basic defense, defensive awareness and also positioning and then using our short offense to, to pull under. Even, you know, when we're snapping our opponent or we're head blocking or down blocking, a lot of the times I just teach double overhooks because I think that teaching a front headlock, now I have to teach how to clear the deep arm. Now I have to teach how to finish if she rises, you know, instead of like being able to move and be mobile in, in that double over position. Um, the next thing that we teach are our drags and our ducks and I'm going behind my partner and driving them down. I'm right back into that same front headlock position slash go behind position, short offense where the women know. And so those skills kind of layer on top of them instead of starting over on a brand new topic. The next thing that we were working on is just like snatch singles, right? I have an angle. I'm trying to go behind. I can't get behind. I'm attacking that near leg and I'm staying on my feet with an outside step. I'm staying on my feet with that snatch single. I don't have to worry about her body weight on top of me. If she starts to sprawl, I can choose to let it go and recover my position. And so just thinking like logically, what's important? If I know how to score with short offense, if I know how to score with a snatch single, if I know how to go behind, I'm pretty good in an offensive position. Defensively, I need to learn how to do, you know, defend a single. I need to learn how to defend a high C and a double. But offensively, if I can narrow my choices and see what I can get the biggest bang for my buck, that's awesome, right? And then from there, I can choose to start to working on like, what are the different setups? And while I'm learning that, I'm also learning how to defend a two-on-one, how to defend an underhook, how to defend and fight inside with an inside tie, you know, all of those things that kind of scaffold and build to something larger, but we start with those simple entry points and what's going to be used over and over and over again without 
you know, the, the fear of somebody's weight on top of me. A lot of people that I see who start in the sport don't have great body control and they don't do a ton of like body weight lifts or have another person, another 150 pounds on top of your back, you know? So why get underneath there? Why put yourself in a position where it hurts? <laughs> hey, let's throw 150. You can't do a push up. How about we throw another 150 pounds on you and then see if you can do a push up? <laughs> Yeah. Can you move down there? I wonder why your face is on the mat and your shoulders hurt. And then you wonder why people leave the sports because we're learning things that are so complex that we're not seeing success early and often. And that affects our ability to believe that long-term I can do this sport, right? Uh, when we fail at something, when we're new at it, we're really rolling the dice to see if they come back tomorrow. And, and, you know, sport has seen numbers declining at the high school level and the youth level for years due to specialization, due to this over intense environment that we're creating for our children. And, and really like, are we thinking about what's best for this kid? You know, how do I show them success? Because I know sport has been influential in my life. It's been a positive experience. I've gained friends, I've gained education. I've had these opportunities, but if I can't keep them in this room, then they're not going to have that same growth. And so I need to think about like from, as much as I love to win as a coach, it's about them and their progression and their journey and falling in love with the sport and coming back day after day because they're recreational, right? They're not here to win Olympic medals on day one, right? I have to start and build that love and build their techniques and skills and then give them the space to want to do it for themselves, right? And now they can switch to that high performance track and now I can push them a little bit harder. But in that beginning phase, it's all about like hugs, love, early success. It's about challenging them, but not over challenging them. It's about creating the right environment where there's fun, there's a social component, there's a learning component, and, and they leave the room feeling like I got stronger today, I learned something today, and I had fun. That's amazing. I love it all. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the social component, right? I think um, a couple of things come to mind when I think of like a recreation or a developmental program, or even a high school program where, you know, as you had at Beat the Streets, where maybe 50 to 60% of your kids, 80% of your kids, it's their first time wrestling experience, some of their first sport experiences, right? I know personally that the most important metric for me in my level one and level two programming is year-on-year retention and in-season retention. And that's kind of it. I base all my self-evaluation on, am I, am I hitting 90 to 100% on that? You know, I set that standard for myself rather than the 49% that is traditional wrestling, right? I always use a reference, right? Wrestling right now is a, biz is a, a restaurant that 49% of the athletes don't come back after the first experience. If I have an actual physical restaurant across the street or the one right behind me right now, and 49% of their customers don't come back, they're out of business pretty quick. Right. Yeah. So wrestling's lucky because right now, you know, it's got a returning group of five to six year olds or high school freshmen and sophomores that are deciding to come out for the sport. And clearly it's our job to figure out how to improve that experience. Is there anything that, you know, you see within long-term athlete development and a focus on a positive initial experience to build the social component and the game component, which let's face it, it's why every single kid goes to play sports. <laughs> it's to make friends and have fun. I thought it was to win. <laughs> no, I feel, I feel like, you know, those are the, the simple things that really like everyone shows up for sport. They want to challenge themselves. Everyone knows that physical activity is good for you. They're trying to find a fun way to, to exercise and create a healthy lifestyle for themselves and, and create that, that social connection and have fun and challenge themselves. I think up to us sports had like a, a session, you know, and they're talking about kids at camp and, uh, 
whether they were likely to return year after year. And the one thing that they found out was they had like all these surveys and ratings and the kids who rated the informal time with their peers in those cabins, like when there wasn't structured learning, when there wasn't um, all this stuff going on or these challenges, like that was what made their experience. The kids who really enjoyed like connecting with those people, that's why they came back year after year. And I still think like as much as I, as a coach, try and build social components into our practices it's really important for me to like let them chat as they walk walk through the warm-up or they're moving or in between rounds to give them that 30 seconds 60 seconds 90 second break as they're recovering to chat with each other and not asking them to be silent you know and finding those informal moments where there's there's a lot of fun and joy in in what they're doing because I I think right as much as I can control the atmosphere I really need them to like buy in and, and I encourage them to talk. Right. And maybe I give them a couple priming questions and then it becomes a habit that every time as we're cooling down, we're talking about the things that went well for us today and the things that challenged us. And we're talking about, you know, Hey, I really love your help with my homework tonight. Or do you want to grab dinner after this? Those kinds of things. Awesome. I love it. So thinking about my personal experience, we had probably a pretty, we had a really intense, um, high school coach who came in fresh out of college, 24 years old, you know, took me from having a good wrestling career to like beating everybody up and winning a lot. But there was a lot of other kids who had wrestled for a long time that stopped wrestling and stopped enjoying it with that experience. You know, it was a lot of sprints. It was a lot of long running, a lot of hard work, extra workouts. You know, it was what I needed at the time as a kid that was competing state and national level, uh, but it wasn't what the other kids needed in, on the team. And, and unfortunately, a lot of them have a negative feeling towards the sport of wrestling because of that experience. How does that relate to what you see at, let's say, you know, the local high schools around here that I, I work with, where a lot of the coaches are, are doing what Stephen Keith um, adamantly says, I'm going to say it on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> I hope you tag him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to tag Stephen Keith in this. Uh, and then Dan Gable and him are going to have a conversation. So um, Stephen Keith says, Dan Gable ruined wrestling. That's it. Dan Gable ruined wrestling. Why? Because everybody saw what they thought Dan Gable was doing, not what he was actually doing, both as an athlete and a coach. And that was just work, 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 work out, work out, work out, work. Right. When in reality, Gable was super introspective. He was all into um, recovery. He was into a lot of things that uh, we now understand through sports science. And as a coach, you know, one of the best stories is when Gable um, told a mentor of mine, Brinzer, uh, hey, I think you need to go home for a couple of weeks. And he let Ray go back to Pennsylvania for four weeks in the middle of the season. And Ray came back and was in the Midland finals as a sophomore because Gable saw the fact that like this kid's not doing well emotionally right now. Um, He needs to go and be with his family and just back in a familiar environment. You know, he was super understanding of the athlete's needs as an individual, right? He was coaching the individual, not the sport. And so with that being said, how can we take the structure that a lot of the local programs that are focused on being hyper-competitive with kids of all skill level, my high school experience, that was right for me, but wrong for 80% of the kids on a team. How can we improve that in a day-to-day uh, application? Yeah, I, I think Stephen Keys makes a lot of sense in that one. I, I was hoping that it wasn't play with the margins quote from Stephen. No, I don't um, know that one, but we'll have to explore that. <laughs> um but I, I think coaching the individual is, is a huge piece, right? Uh, we have a 
whole span and spectrum of, of skill levels and goals here um, that I normally deal with. And so for me, I coach to the mass. The mass of my, my room right now is, is less experienced. And so when I'm teaching and when we're, we're drilling, I'm explaining and structuring drills that fit that person's need in the largest group, right? And there might be athletes who are ahead who I need to add extra challenges. And there might be people who are behind who I need to slow it down and say, hey, let's just work on this step. And so I think one, considering that like it's capable, you're capable of like adjusting small things within a practice. So maybe um, our larger group is working on a bicep tie, push, pull to a snatch single. Uh, our more advanced girls are clearing out of a two on one, getting back to their bicep tie, push, pull back to their single. And now they're maybe looking for lace or maybe it's a spar instead of a drill. Our uh, less experienced girls, maybe they're just getting in on a snatch single and keeping their head tight and pushing and pulling and learning how to move with a leg in their in, in between their hands, right? Uh, another thing to consider is, right, like, what is the periodization? And you talked about it, right? Those practices where you're just like exhausted, and there's nothing left to give, and it makes and it's the sport five days cold. a week. Yeah. <laughs> and these sports so not fun. There's this magical thing called periodization. <laughs> and, uh, you know, periodization doesn't begin when you're entering sport at six. Uh, at those age groups, you know, even through junior high, and you can make the argument that some of your, your freshmen and sophomores in, in high school probably still need this too, where they're being taught a sport and it's fun and it's learning. And yeah, there's challenging moments, but they're not really periodizing their training to perform at a national or a state level. Um, so I, I would say that the general population, yeah, you can create those challenges, but when fatigue starts to hit and their quality drops, do you think that is safe? For that student athlete, do you think it's uh, going to encourage them to come back? You know, there's overreaching what, what, on that. Go what ahead. do you mean when our fatigue starts to set in and the quality drops? Uh, so like maybe you're doing 30 minutes of live and <laughs> after about 15 minutes, you realize that people are taking half shots and getting smashed on their face or they're getting run over by an opponent. Um, you know, like I think that that's a, could be a dangerous situation for people who don't exactly know how to protect themselves. Maybe they're inexperienced in the sport. I think a lot of our practice time should be structured on learning and we can easily manage periodization in the weight room where, where we say like volume is the amount of, of repetitions I get through an entire workout. My intensity is how heavy that I'm lifting in a wrestling room. It's a little bit more like not so black and white. It's more shades of gray. You can measure your intensity by minutes of lives. You can measure your intensity or sorry, your volume by minutes of lives, by number of practices in a week, by number of repetitions that each athlete's doing. Right. But a lot of it is, is by sight. And instead of like crushing these student athletes in in wrestling like positions, I think we could, we could do ourselves a better service by saying like, Hey, um, we're, we're only going to wrestle live for eight minutes every single day. And those are those peak moments. And maybe I do increase the intensity by saying like, let's do executions, a lot of reps in a short amount of time uh, of your best attack. But I also give them equal recovery time so that those reps stay quality and their technique is looking good and their head is still up and their hips are still in and they're running their feet. That doesn't mean that we don't challenge them. But it does mean that we're like thinking strategically about what's the best way to help this athlete, one, learn, two, stay healthy, three, how do I make sure that when the end of year comes, they're able to do what they need to do. And I don't need to accomplish that today because it's, you know, uh, this December 1st, so I'm 30 days into training with these student athletes. I still have another 
60 to 90 days, depending on which state you're wrestling in and when, when your championship falls, right. To really refine those skills and challenge and build their cardiovascular level, to build their strength, to be able to teach them tactics of how to win a match with different strategies, whether I'm winning or I'm losing. I think uh, we just burn people. Right. And we think that the entire time, the entire season, every single practice, we should leave completely fatigued. We forget that these, these kids, these student athletes have lives right? Like when they leave this practice, they still have homework to do. They still need to eat dinner. Maybe they need to take care of their siblings. Maybe they have a job. Maybe they're applying for colleges. Maybe on top of this hard practice that they're going through, they need to go home and take care of animals on their farm or something like that, right? There's other responsibilities and they're leaving there exhausted, right? And they're never really recovering to get back to a healthy status or a fresh status. And then we're burning them again. Well, won't they not get in good enough shape to make it through a six minute wrestling match? or seven minutes for college? I, I think that you could easily structure some, some conditioning that, that does not leave you absolutely fatigued every single day. So what we do here is we have one day of anaerobic training. We have one day of aerobic training and their lifts are also kind of structured the same way in the practice. There are peaks and valleys of, of I'm pushing the pace and now I'm giving them recovery time because I want them to look good, whether it's a recovery time to get a drink of water or it's a recovery time of jogging with their partner. Maybe it's a recovery time of shifting from neutral wrestling and, and a lot of reps to a slower pace of wrestling. And maybe we're in parterre or on top bottom and folk style, right? But I can control, right? I've pushed them. I pushed them. I pushed them. I, they rose to the challenge. They worked hard. Now I've got to give them that recovery time. Otherwise, I'm teaching bad habits or I'm reinforcing bad habits and I'm also increasing the risk of injury. Interesting. So my friend, Trevor at Resilient, very big on periodization. He's got a great podcast, um, Resilient Sports Performance for anybody that wants to check it out. A lot to learn there. He often says that, you know, when you go, you can go hard one, two, three days in a row, right? But on that third day, you're a hundred percent, even though physically and mentally, you think that you're at a hundred percent, you're probably at like 70 to 80%. And so if you're trying to get the peak performance out of your athletes, three, four five days in a row of, of extreme intensity, that's not realistic because you're not pushing the wall back for that athlete. You're not helping that athlete improve. You're just beating that athlete down mentally and physically. You're breaking down their soft tissue. So they're going to be higher risk of injury, not only in those failed positions where they're poor positionally. So maybe their shoulders extended and they tear it. Right. And so how would you, let's say I'm a high school coach and it's beginning a season where maybe it's December or, or January. We're not necessarily starting to taper or have any, like we've got maybe two to three months out. What would your intensity throughout a week look like? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, right, you probably wrestled on a Saturday. Maybe you have a dual meet in the middle of the week. So on Monday, you're starting practice. I would start with maybe a little bit of film study and watching those matches or, or maybe some clips and having your student athletes learn how to break down that film. And maybe that's only 20, 30 minutes of your practice. We don't practice more than 90 minutes. I think after 90 minutes, the rest of it's a wash anyway of, of are we really accomplishing anything or am, am I being strategic with my time and, and their time? So that's 30 minutes of your practice. So that still gives you an hour to warm up, to work on some of those things that you're seeing in your team from that weekend. And you're taking it slow, right? On Monday, you're thinking about how do I reteach some of those skills that maybe we, we broke down on over the weekend. And on Tuesday, maybe I can start to rev it up a little bit and push them and challenge them a little bit, right? And maybe I'm doing um, eight to 15 minutes of live total with some conditioning and that conditioning is wrestling specific. So maybe it's just moving in your stance without a partner, or maybe it's moving quick feet 
into those reaction drills and just thinking about movement or it's head blocking or recovering positions, right? But it's not anything where they're like pounding and, and grinding their bodies and, and being physically exhausted. Wednesday, I increased the intensity again, instead of maybe doing shorter goals that I did on Tuesday, maybe now I'm starting to do a three minute period or a two minute period a little bit longer. So our student athletes, one, have the opportunity to play and, and grow and learn and practice some of those match strategies, but also, you know, it's a little bit lower intensity, even though I'm doing a little bit more live, I'm still bringing that, that energy down because you can't sprint for six minutes. You can't sprint for, <laughs> for four minutes. Right. So having those longer periods of goals help athletes learn how to manage their energy in a match. Right. On Thursday, I'm slowing it back down and, and kind of refining and maybe even talking about match tactics. And then I would do match scenarios. I would do 30 seconds or a minute goes and saying, Hey, you're up by one, you're down by two, you're on bottom. You need an escape and a takedown to win this match. If I want to fatigue them, I might say, okay, we're going to do uh, a match go. And then you're going to do 30 seconds of stance in motion at the end. And I'm going to see how explosive you can be after you did that one minute go. And then you'll have one minute break, right? So when the fatigue hits, as I know we have to wrestle Saturday, I'm not putting them in a dangerous situation where they're getting beat on or they're getting slammed to the ground and doing my best to, to keep them safe. Cause I feel like we overcompete in high school by competing every single weekend and having dual meets throughout the week. Um, and then on Friday, it's about like bringing it back down. We're working on our best attacks. We're, we're feeling different movements. We're working on maybe some of our weaknesses or strategies that we're going to go against a certain opponent. I wouldn't do a ton of live. I would probably do like less than six minutes of live and they're probably shorter goes. If I want to have like that intensive burst and, and my athletes feel like they need it for their confidence, I might make them do executions where it's like, Hey, I want to see your best shot. I want to see it five times in a row. I want to see a head block reattack. I want to see a, a fake pull to a shot and letting them burn their legs that way, as opposed to like getting into a bunch of crazy scramble situations and, and twisting an arm or something like that. And then the rest of that practice is really like their weight management. You know, like, Hey, can you keep your sweat rolling? I don't want you to work too terribly hard. Can I see 25 of your best setups nice and slow? Can we clear this tie? Right. And just keeping them, keeping their sweat rolling and keeping them healthy. Amazing. It's awesome. So one thing that I do want to throw out there, you know, I want to try to keep us to 30 minutes. So we've got a few <laughs> minutes left. Highlighted something, I think last year when we were talking about the programming for, for the St. Joe's regional team that I was coaching. Again, mostly level four, high performance athletes, college bound. You know, one thing that we would start and end every practice with was competing, right? And I'm just teaching them how to compete games, right? Hand, mm -hmm. You know, we play a game I call hand soccer or we play down black dodgeball, right? Skill building, intention with our time instead of jogging. So we're getting better at wrestling games and it's fun. They build that social component. You know, can you talk about like what age appropriate or is it emotionally appropriate time to introduce, I guess, competition? And then I think that can, can kind of segue into the last final question and, and we'll wrap up. Yeah, I think it's very misleading because we start competition here in the U.S. at like single digit ages. And we're like, what do you mean there's not a national championship for these six and unders? But actually, we don't recognize our ability or, or sorry, the cause of our wins and losses until about age 12. So before that, these athletes might win a game and they might think it's because they're amazing. They might win a game and think it because their friends were amazing or they got a lucky call, right? That's called external locus of control. When I let other people claim my successes or on the reverse side, right? I lose internally. I blame myself for every single thing that went wrong or, or the team's loss or an individual loss. Um, and that's like 
what, what, let me restart. <laughs> yeah. So there's a uh, locus of control, which means like what's causing the results here. Internal locus of control means that I have complete control over my destiny. My actions and my behaviors directly result or directly impact the result of this match. And then external locus of control means that everything happened by chance. The referee took the match out of my hands. My teammates were excellent today and that's why we won or that's why we lost. Um, and so until the age of 12, we don't really understand locus of control and we're unable to define what really was the cause of why I won and lost this game or this match or whatever it is that at the sporting event that I got into. That doesn't mean that we don't play games for fun, but it does mean that like, I don't want to put this child into a high pressure situation before the age of 12, right? If they're unable to determine why they won and lost, think about this. If I'm throwing a 12 year old into a match and they lose and they think it's because they suck at wrestling, not because they wrestled somebody who has six more years of experience who trains seven days a week year round, right? What is that child thinking? They're thinking, I just, I shouldn't be a wrestler. Right. And, and so we're kind of putting them in a dangerous situation when we don't match skill level, experience level weights and put them in an adequate challenge. Um, and I think games are great. I think competition and teaching kids to compete is great. But I think we have to do a really good job as adults in that situation to manage what is the challenge and what is the game. And also after that game, am I helping them learn how to frame things? Right. Maybe you ask them why why they won or lost that game and then you give them the chance to explain themselves and you can hear what they're thinking. And then maybe it's your job to reframe or you can say, hey, I really think that you did a good job. You really understood that the reason that match was lost is because you were in your stance for five minutes. And that last, you know, that last minute, we got a little bit tired and came up out of our stance and they were able to get to our legs. Right. And, and owning that as opposed to like just throwing them out there and saying, good luck. I hope it goes your way. <laughs> and then when the match ends, criticizing them and giving them a hard time to understand why the results happened the way they did. Um, and, and just being diligent about like our role as coaches and parents and, and people who are surrounding these young adults. Amazing. Amazing. This is the best. So Emma's going to be on again. We've got two final questions for her, which is going to give a lot of value to, to the other coaches that are listening today, hopefully. Emma, any resources, whether it's a website or a book, the number one thing you would recommend for other coaches to dig into? Ooh, this is tough because I didn't think about this beforehand. Um, I would look into Coaching Better Every Season with Wade, um, Wade Gilbert. Uh, he's a sports psychologist, works with all kinds of teams. Um, it just kind of helps you have an introspective look on like, what are my goals as a coach? What are the experiences I want to create for my, my student athletes? Uh, helping me kind of understand how curriculum should be built and how practice plans can be built to like have the student experience at the center of what we do. Um, I would also recommend um, just reading through up to us sports, they have a couple different like platforms where you can start to learn like your role as a coach and as a mentor is really important um, and how to do those fundamental games, um, how to structure a practice that adds those social emotional learning components, but also the games and the fun and the skill building acquisition pieces and scaffolding that way. I think, you know, whether you're an excellent coach who, who has all these accolades and knows every single technique, I think it's our job. To, to build the experience for these kids because they won't learn if, if they don't feel loved, if they don't feel like a safe environment, if they don't feel like there's something that's going to make them want to be there every single day. Awesome. Amazing. I love it. So within that final question, what motivates you to do this? Oh man, 
I love watching people master new skills. I think that is, is really cool, whether it's a skill in the wrestling room, whether it's something they learned in, in class today, whether it's they called me five years down the road after I'm no longer even coaching them to let me know something good happened in their life. I think skill mastery, the relationships with the student athletes, um, and then just like that, that um, feeling of like, hey, I, I was an influential person in this person in this person's life. Like I was able to show them that I loved and cared for them, that I believed in them, that they still want to maintain that relationship years down the road and share their wins and losses with me. I think that's really meaningful. And I think my coaches have made a huge impact in my life and same with my academic advisors and professors and teachers. And I, I think um, relationships are what's the most important thing in this world. And, and uh, if I could do that for somebody else, I, I would love to. Yeah, that is amazing. And that is why you are a world-class coach and a world-class person. Emma, thank you very much. This was incredible. I look forward to getting this out to a lot of folks to be able to help them. And I think that you're going to get a lot of follow-up questions. Is there a way that people can contact you? Or I know that I've hired you to do a couple of, you do some coaches education workshops and I've sent a few of my coaches there to attend your workshops. Can you tell us a little more about that? And then we'll close this out. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. I have definitely enjoyed <laughs> chatting with you. If you would love to follow up with a question, feel free to DM me. My Instagram is Emma Randall 6343. I also founded my own business. I do a little bit of consulting for coaching coaches, but also for psychology and how to integrate those plans into your daily practice plans and all that kind of fun stuff. I, I really love like the methodology of coaching. And I think it's an important piece that's often overlooked in, in our role as coaches. What's so the website usually, where people can find that? It's Evolve Leadership and Performance. You can check it out each spring. We're doing a coaches clinic series just to try and like do a virtual workshop to, again, raise the level of education and opportunity for coaches who are interested in adding those psychological elements who are trying to refine their practice plans and curriculum building and periodize, periodizing their, their plans. Awesome. Emma, thank you very much. This is The Business of Wrestling. Powered by Wrestling IQ, which is hopefully helping wrestling mavens be more effective and saving them time. Awesome. What a lovely closer. (laughs) Was it?